Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University. And here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to a bonus recording in our regular series of Meet the Education Researcher podcasts. My name is Neil Sowen and I work in the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And so the aim of these recordings is very simple. We're going to spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today I'm joined by a guest from the UK, John Potter, an associate professor from the UCL Institute of Education in London. John's a friend of the faculty. He was a visiting scholar in 2016 and I think he's coming back to Melbourne this October. So all in all, a good person to talk to. Good morning, John. Thanks very much, Neil. So lots to talk about. And I guess first, the varied areas in which you're researching. So I guess in a nutshell, how would you describe the areas that you're actually working at the moment? Curiously, I would use the words of the title of the new book I've written with Julian McDougall. thought I'd start early with that because I was really trying to think hard about what are the areas and they are actually digital media, culture and education. That's really what I'm interested in. So for me, that's the many ways in which people engage in meaning making practices um, and in the context of cultural studies, in the context of education studies how this works or doesn't in terms of policy, practice, theory, advocacy. And a particular interest of mine is advocating for um, a media education, particularly for younger children, um, an interest group which is not usually represented when people are advocating for media studies for older students and so yeah, yeah, forth. Yeah. So as soon as anyone says meaning making, my kind of theory is prick up. Right. You're obviously not just approaching this from a kind of practical point of view. What, what theoretical no. perspective are you taking when you talk about meaning making? Okay, that's a good point. So for meaning making, it is the many ways in which people engage uh, at the present moment and probably in the future to make meaning through various different media. So from print through to uh, blogging, social media, um, video, animation, all of those sorts of forms. And the theoretical underpinning of that is trying to advance the work that was started really by multiliteracies and new literacies. And I've been lately using a term that was coined uh, during a seminar series that I did with Paul Arsand and Reyo Kupiainen at University of Trondheim, which is we're trying to create a theory of dynamic literacies because we're not sure about the word new anymore. Mm. But basically that meaning is, is not fixed. Literacy is not an autonomous force but is contingent, political, socially situated and so forth, but is also in this kind of swirl of dynamic at the moment, um, which is a mixture of practices which arise in response to digital technology, which is in the mix, but not led by it, if yeah, you see yeah, what I mean. Yeah. So no, that's, that's, so, what, that's what we're interested that in. That sounds really powerful. So how would you relate that to, to, to young children? You mentioned before that your focus is particularly on young children. So how does dynamic literacies relate to young children? I think that um, it relates to young children in the sense that they, they are open to the sorts of forces around them in terms of meaning making when they're outside of um, formal institutions they see their parents on smartphones they experience all kinds of media they also look at print they read books they talk to their parents and so forth and then they enter the school gates and it's what happens across that kind of transition then into the formal structures of the of the curriculum what happens to their experiences of media 
do they find any of it recognised in mm. any of the practices in which they engage in the classroom? But I guess it's not as simple as kind of out of school and in school, which no. is what people used to talk about. So, I mean, how are you kind of working through the... the kind no, of... it's not as simple as that. And it's not as simple as saying that things have value in one location and do not have value in another. It's about recognising that the child is the same person, but moves across what we've in the past referred to as a kind of semi-permeable membrane it's it's a theoretical construct that's been known for a number of years in um, children's literacy studies so the work of um, Shirley Bryce Heath and Anne Haas Dyson and others so it's about they bring the popular cultural experiences and digital media experiences across and then going back the other way if they're in, a, in an environment which supports that there's a kind of a third space created in the dialogue that they have with their teachers and peers and so forth which values it and engenders the kind of skills and dispositions that they need to be critical users of this stuff on the mm. other side of the divide. So it's not a hard and fast divide. One area is not good, one area is not bad, but it's more complicated than that. And I think we need more research in the field that follow, that tracks the users across these spaces. So I was just going to ask you about methods. How do you <laughs> track users? How do you research dynamic literacies? How do you research third spaces? Well, that's a really good question. Um, in our case, and when I say our, I mean in the DARE Collaborative, what we've done is we've got smaller scale grants which investigate certain kinds of meaning making practices. So, for example, a small amount of digital game making or a small amount of, of work with iPads and, and filmmaking. And we've tried to track these practices across that boundary and explore them by um, making images talking to students, having children interview each other, all of these sorts of methods that um, have grown quite common, I guess, in, in, recent, in recent years in terms of digital technologies. But our real interest is in a totally participatory or getting mm. as close to participation on the part of the, of the children who are being researched. So they're, they're doing the research into their own lives at the same time. So our methods are kind of quite complex and quite difficult sometimes ethically and methodologically. But also practically. I mean, and this idea of participatory yeah. research and co-research sounds great on paper, but I mean, yeah, what no, problems is, do you come up against? Well, the, the problem is how to, how to manage it all, how to triangulate it all, and how to, how to sort of respect the integrity of the data and preserve it into what you're writing. So um, I've recently, when I've been presenting, I've been drawing on an example of very poor research from my own. That's <laughs> so always to, a good idea, yeah. <laughs> Celebrate learn. your failure. Yeah. So um, I quote this example of uh, an interview that I make in a third space with a child who's just made a computer game. And I'm kind of badgering the witness. Mm. Um, but, I draw, and, but I get as good as I'm giving from the, the other side, from this 10-year-old who's saying, well, that's just my opinion. And we kind of agree by the end. But it does, I use that as an illustration of how not to do it, really. So it is difficult, and I don't have any easy answers. But what I would like is the opportunity to try harder with it and mm. to try some new techniques. And to, in fact, a project that, that was located in methodology itself would be very interesting at yeah, the moment. Yeah, yeah. I think that's where some of the most interesting research grants have been given, particularly in the UK, mm. exploring issues through methodology. I guess slowing down for a second, I also just wanted to talk about ideas, I mean, where your head's at mm. for the moment. So, I mean, what ideas and concepts are shaping your thinking at the moment? Well, that one I mentioned earlier of dynamic literacies is important yeah. to me. Also, theorising properly what a third space might be, because it's a kind of, it's a lovely sort of 
feel-good phrase, third space. It's adopted by a commercial organization that works with us here, third space learning. You know, it's it's got a lovely feel to it, but like a lot of these things that sound good, it has a it has a lot of really interesting antecedents. Yeah, yeah. So it's about kind of unpicking where its where its DNA is and it's sort of located in the work of Barber, um, language of culture and about how meaning is understood between participants who are creating this message together. And then deriving that through the work of Chris Gutierrez, who interestingly hadn't read Barber when she wrote her Towards a sociocultural theory of literacy paper. I've noticed that in the notes the last time I read it. And um, so third spaces are interesting. But the other big one in recent years for me has been curation, which I think is sometimes uh, mistakenly represented or misrepresented as a kind of celebratory construct around how we can all curate meaning because we can make Instagram profiles. But what I want to do is to problematize that in terms of what does it mean for the individual, for the community that they belong to, and what does it mean for their future, their past, how does representation change over time? I think the whole thing is completely fascinating, and it draws you into a whole range of different areas from anthropology through to all sorts of versions of literacy that there are. I love this idea of kind of tracing a hot concept like curation and then trying to find out where its antecedents were. I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was who are your kind of greatest of all time? Who did you go back to to read it again and again from the 50s, 60s, 70s? Wow. Well, I think it's it's compulsory where I work to name check Bourdieu. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) Bourdieu'sian approach. Bourdieu'sian approach is interesting. Um, the dispositions that children and people exhibit around the sort of artifacts that they own and the possessions that they have and the representations that they make. So habitus is a key is a key concept and how that gets represented in further representations. Um, of course, uh, the other compulsory theorist is uh, is Foucault. So these are kind of in the DNA of things. But I've also enjoyed working with uh, concepts that Bakhtin had around centripetal and centrifugal forces of language. Have you taken a Deleuzean turn yet, like everybody else? Not really. Good for you. <laughs> Not, really. <laughs> Not really, but that's just, I mean, I guess I need to. No. But, well, I, I don't know. No, I, I don't. I mean, I'm very interested in that, and I always enjoy reading people who are writing about that, and it, yeah, force, yeah. it forces me to go and think about it more. But um, I'm kind of still located located where I am, and I need to understand more about that. Likewise, some of the, the theories of um, actor network theory and so forth, what is useful in that and how far down that road I want to go, I'm not absolutely sure yet. So what is interesting is where people, particularly in Australia and in the UK, have attempted to bring some socio-material work into the classroom. So I'm thinking of Cathy Burnett yeah, yeah. and Guy Merchant and in Australia of Michael Deswani and people who've been writing in in that way that is cognizant of affect spaces actual technologies as being part of the 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 whole network of what's going on without i'm not sure about how far to go out into that area um usefully or to wander around in that terrain or to actually look at what people who've been there are writing in the field that i work in and then try to work with that yeah it's good to know that there are people out there doing it yes stops you having to do it yourself i mean i'm what do you think about about the future? What are your big future plans? What's your five-year plan for world domination? If I gave you a million dollars, what wow. would you go off and research? Wow. 
Well, I think that what I would do would be to develop further. I'd develop along two lines, I think. I'd develop methodologically, and then I'd use some of what I found through the methodological work I was doing and apply it to a phenomenon. So I'm very interested in the idea of spaces as, as hubs through which you track people and the things and the practices that they engage with. By people, I mean users of these spaces. So let's say you have a, a centre. It might be after school, it might be in school. Uh, and then you trace the impact on the lives of the people who tra traverse through it across this space between home and school and out into the wider community um, through time. I'd like, I like the idea of being embedded in a space and creating the space away from my daily admin, um, <laughs> the things that I do to keep myself you know, in a job. I would like to have some actual space to be properly embedded in, in a place like that. An ethnography? I think it is a kind of ethnography. I'm increasingly drawn to that, but I also want to stay theoretically connected. So I'm not um, only going to spend time in a place where I'm going to write a kind of story or create a giant vignette. I would like to be connected to the theories mm. that I'm thinking about. So pinging between the two would and be good. And connected to the people that you're working, doing the research with. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, I had a final simple question to finish on. This is just something that's kind of uh, bothering me at the moment. I'm presuming that being in education research was not what you saw yourself doing when you left school. No. So, I mean, how would you now justify your job to your 18-year-old <laughs> self? What is it about education research that actually makes it worth doing? Oh gosh, to my eighteen-year-old self, I don't know because I think my eighteen. Would he 18... be impressed? <laughs> I think he'd say, "What on earth is that about?" And because you know, I'm so old now that uh, so much change has happened in in those years that the job that I'm doing now just simply, you know, I'm contemplating a new research project in which we're looking at virtual reality playgrounds. That would be difficult to explain. And that would be difficult to explain that to an 18-year-old. I think what I would say is that it engages with people, which is one of my main interests. Mm. Um, and it engages with people's lived experience. It engages with popular culture. I think day to day, um, in terms of research, it's something that occupies both your brain and your heart and your beliefs. So I'm still located in those in those fields. So I think I'd say to the 18-year-old, you know, it's it'll be okay. <laughs> it's going to be all right. And you're getting paid to be creative. You're creating your yes. writing. I mean, it's a, it's yes. a privileged job in that respect. It is totally privileged. So when I talk about struggle, as I often do, like, oh, I'm really struggling to get a grant, or I'm really struggling. Academics don't struggle. People who uh, have no money struggle, or not enough to eat, or living in the developing world, that's struggle. Um, what I have is an absolutely privileged position. Great colleagues. I get to travel, and I get to meet people, and I get to talk about these ideas and kind of be playful with them as well. And, uh, you know, I'm very, very lucky. That sounds like a perfect job. I think I might apply for one myself. Anyway, <laughs> I'm thanks. just glossing over the other stuff, yeah, yeah, Neil. Yeah. You and know that. The, and there's the admin <laughs> as well. Well, thanks ever so much for taking the time out to Pleasure. speak to us today. And, uh, yeah, good luck with it all.